From Albany to Astoria and Buffalo to Bedford Park, right here in the borough of Brooklyn, it's 5 p.m. in the Empire State and across the five boroughs. And so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Post-election day, we were building up to that day for so long, I don't even know what to do with myself yet, (laughs) but um, the day after after pretty big election day, um, Jarrett, just sort of the big takeaways from election day 2018. I think we're still getting a sense of the national picture, but obviously Democrats are going to retake the House, will retake the House. Question of the margin. Uh, they have uh, lost some ground in the Senate. Um, neither of those is a surprise exactly. The extent of them might be a little bit on the House side, that it is going to be a fairly solid uh, majority. And some big government races going the Democrats' way in the state, though, and that might be the story we've paid more close attention to in addition to expected wins by Democrats in all the statewide races, governor, attorney general, comptroller, and senator, and holding on to the assembly, although I guess losing a little ground there, not that it mattered much, taking over the state senate for the first time um, since 2009-2010 with a very sizable majority. That That's one of the most remarkable sort of secondary aspects of it is the, the extent of the majority that Democrats will seemingly have in the New York State Senate after being somewhat in the wilderness in the Senate in the minority and struggling with all these rogue Democrats and a coup 10 years ago and all these things that now all of a sudden you're going to go into 2019 and you have a Democratic governor, wide majority in the Assembly and a pretty wide majority in the Senate. And it's a whole new day for Democrats in New York. Before we go further on that, I do want to underscore it was expected, but still the votes had to be cast. And for the House of Representatives on the federal level to flip to Democrats in the era of Trump is pretty monumental, even if expected. And that's going to portend a whole bunch of news and and interesting dynamics, and we won't go into all that now. Um, Except to say that th- that's a big one. That New York was part of that story too. New York yes. City, in in terms of Max Rose, um, I think upsetting Daniel Donovan, the incumbent in Staten Island, Brooklyn District, District Eleven, and the two upper state races, uh, John Faso losing to Antonio Delgado and Claudia Tenney losing to Anthony Bernice, yeah, Bernice yeah, right. assembly member. And yeah, those three those three flips are big. Uh, the Long Island races that people had a little bit of a sense maybe. Maybe the Democrats could pull off big upsets. That didn't happen, but it did happen in the state Senate, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. And again, maybe that's a discussion for for another time. We get some data crunchers on. But Democrats did in the state Senate what they couldn't do in Congress, and that is really dominate on Long Island, which is a big bellwether for where New York is. Uh, even Governor Cuomo did a little better, I think, than expected on Long Island, and he cruised to victory. So, um, you know, the these house races that New York helped contribute to flipping the house on the federal level, a lot to dissect there. And then Governor Cuomo winning a third term easily, despite his issues around the subways and corruption and, and other problems. And then Democratic control of the New York State Senate is absolutely immense for a whole 
bunch of reasons. And we should mention, too, kind of pulling back a bit, big turnout um, seen everywhere around the country, including in New York State. I think the back of the envelope uh, uh, calculation is about 50%. Just under, yeah. Which is uh, significantly higher than in any race in my in my memory. Uh, and also that turnout, unfortunately, in the city at least, being accompanied by a new round of concerns about polling practices, a lot of problems with machines. Obviously, it was a long ballot. That was weird. That caused problems. A lot of broken machines. Many districts without a single working scanner for part of the day. Long lines. People turned away or turning themselves away, I should say, because of the way. Terrible. Um, raising real questions this morning that I think there's a lot of, let's face it, we live in a democratic city. The apparatus obviously is increasingly controlled by Democrats. There's excitement and joy about the results last night. But that result, the fact that people were not able to exercise their franchise because of a stupid machine, is something that hopefully the moment will not pass where the uh, the urgency to address that is is lost. You know, City Council Speaker Corey Johnson put it well when he called it Groundhog Day. It's 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 unconscionable. It's embarrassing. This is the greatest city in the world, or supposed to be, or is among whatever, however you want to say it. I say greatest city in the world, and we can't run an election. We can't have machines that work. We can't prepare. We you know these budgets are so many billions of dollars that the city and the state have. We can't put the proper funding behind getting a professionalized board of election staff and better paid poll workers or whatever it takes to just get this done. I just don't get it. I don't have any more patience for it just as someone who cares about civic life and voting. It's it's just disgusting and it, we, it has to be fixed. So there's a lot of talk about that at least. And like you said, it, it can't die down. I'll just put a quick plug in on two of the things we just discussed. We've published articles at Gotham Gazette, both on the turnout jump and trying to just diagnose very quickly and clearly like why elections in New York City are not run properly and the small but significant fixes that need need to be done. And we have uh, stories from yesterday, actually a series of vignettes from around the city reporting some of those problems, as well as some of the more positive stories at the polling sites that were contributed by a reporting team we had of reporters from the Newmark School of Journalism, our own uh, high school reporting interns, Lehman College students. So an interesting taste of voting around the city. Each of us saw what happened in our own polling place. This is a sense of what the election looked like all day long. But to take stock of this, tell us what it means, tell us what to look forward to, we're going to be joined in a moment by Alyssa Katz, my former boss at City Limits, a well-known editor, (laughs) journalist, and author, and for many years now on the Daily News editorial board. We'll be hearing from her. And she's about to join us, and we'll talk also, we should mention, that the three ballot proposals to change the city charter all passed. We'll touch on that with her, which a bunch of other things, as soon as we have her with us momentarily. You're listening to Max and Murphy. Stay with us. We are now joined by Alyssa Katz of the Daily News Editorial Board. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's jump right into just generally your biggest reactions to what happened on Election Day, whether it's nationally or in New York. What, what were sort of the what's sticking with you a few hours later? Well, I mean, certainly the Democratic uh, takeover of the House of Representatives. I mean, it's it's you know so much is now possible as a result of um, Democrats taking over, even if they cannot get legislation past um, the Senate or past President Trump, and particularly around uh, investigating 
investigating Trump around investigating the administration in general. I mean, we talk about, you know, getting his tax returns out and, and so on, but I feel like there is so much going on within the agencies of the Trump administration that uh, is of serious uh, concern for the American people. Um, and, you know, Trump has, is, as uh, you know, we are hearing today, I mean, he's uh, trying to intimidate the House out of doing any investigation, saying he's going to come right back at them. And they should not be swayed for a moment, but nor should the House overreach and try to kind of push uh, investigative agendas that can be uh, at all subject to question. But there's so much low-hanging fruit, so much to work on. So that's very uh, exciting. And on the state level, the New York State Senate, for the first time really in many decades, is in solidly Democratic hands. And this is a real game changer, both for New York State and especially New York City, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, But that, I think those are the two big takeaways from yesterday. The federal results, like stepping back, what do you think they indicate in terms of you know national political temperature? There are people having different takes on that. The fact that the, the blue wave, such as it was, captured the House, but not the Senate, it, does it indicate some sort of wide rejection of the president? Or is this just a typical midterm election where the president loses ground kind of almost as a, as a rite of passage? Yeah, no, I mean, what we saw happen, I think, is very much a function of kind of the structure of of uh, the House and Senate um, and, and just how they're provided for in the Constitution because the Senate seats that were up for grabs, actually the Democrats did pretty well when you look at how many Democratic seats were, were actually open. The problem for the party was that they lost ground in certain states that were overwhelmingly uh, Republican and had had gone for Trump and you still had Democratic senators there who happened to be up for re-election this year, such as Heidi Heitkamp and also the senator from Indiana, um, it, you know, where you just, uh, they were extremely vulnerable, uh, and it just was a of luck of the draw in terms of where the cycles had, had fallen. Um, and of course, there is a disadvantage to the Democrats, um, an advantage to low population, overwhelmingly red states, just numerically in the Senate, and that is going to be very difficult for the Democrats to counter in the future. Um, but what we saw clearly in the House results is that despite gerrymandering, despite all the voter suppression efforts around the country, and the, and, the, and the laws uh, advancing that, um, you know, despite everything, um, you nonetheless saw really high um, Democratic turnout um, and results that um, I think speak for themselves. There's a real revulsion in many parts of the country. Um, President Trump at sort of the Republican Party backing him up, and there was a you know vote them out uh, mentality. I mean, you know, I, we can't read every voter's mind, but I think the numbers suggest that this is more than just, as you're saying, a, you know, p- potentially a uh, kind of, you know, midterm election where there's going to be a course correction. This is a big deal. I mean, that, that raises an interesting point because I'm sort of, I've been wrestling with that question about, wow, you know, Donald Trump is a very abnormal president, but this first midterm election year, yes, maybe there were some more House seats that swung than you might normally expect, especially with an economy that's that's this good. But at the same time, I don't know, there weren't really that many shockers. There weren't, you know, Andrew Gillum lost in Florida. I mean, that's obviously a, not a legislative race, but a governor's race. And, you know, just that it, it wasn't quite this backlash to Trump that maybe 
you might expect if you were sort of looking through very clear eye. You know, the Daily News obviously had a lot of criticism of of Trump and, you know, if people looking with sort of more clear eyes, you'd almost think there would be a bigger backlash to him. Yeah, you make, I think, Ben, you're making a really good observation. And look, voters' motivations are complicated. And Trump was very persistent, as was his party, in fanning fears, for instance, of the immigrant, quote unquote, caravan um, coming toward the uh, the border. And, you know, in, in individual races and in individual states, you know, those may well have had the desired effect, um, as well as the economy being very strong. I mean, Trump can take some credit for that, certain measures he's taken, at least in the short term, and that Congress has taken more, you know, more directly, um, especially the tax cut and these fake promises, oh, we'll do a middle class tax cut. Um, all of that definitely has an effect on voters who you know, ask themselves, how am I doing financially? Am I better off now? Do I have a job now? Which for a vast majority of Americans is is yes. Um, all that counts at the ballot box. And maybe party allegiance is just so strong right now, right? That people are clearly overlooking a lot of his other issues and we won't even take the time to go into what those are, but people have done that to elect him and are doing that as, as he's president to just say, broadly speaking, the policies are policies I agree with? Perhaps. I mean, it's interesting about party allegiance because you have a shrinking Republican Party. It's you know down to something like 30% of the electorate, and that party is increasingly uh, synonymous with loyalists to Trump. So really, what's critical here is how independent voters mm. went and what motivated them. And you know, I do think at the end there you know, I, again, no, you know, be, being here in New York City, I think it's it's sometimes hard to kind of perceive how issues look in the rest of the country. But you have independent voters who have swum back and forth between Obama and Trump, who uh, have a, a real mix of uh, priorities. They might be uh, pro-life but pro-labor. They might be uh, sort of concerned about immigration, but also really want health care. I mean, and, and nobody is giving those voters necessarily a kind of a bundle. Uh, that they want because the party uh, partisanship is so extreme that they kind of have to pick one. And, you know, for certain of us independent voters, the Republican candidate was offering them enough of what they wanted that they went for them. Again, this is just kind of a very broad read, right. but I think that's just a reality of the landscape right now. I was thinking last night before results came in that if there had been, and I, I, I think you're correct, but this is a big deal and this is a dramatic result, but if there had been the kind of thing Ben was talking about, like a, a widespread repudiation of, of Trump such that he lost the Senate or that lost the Florida governor's race, that Republicans would have to rethink sort of where the president stands in their lives and their strategy and whether they're going to stick with him to the extent that most Republicans have and whether their rhetoric was appropriate, especially like the caravan stuff you talked about, which I think here in the East, we all were anticipating a backlash to, but in fact, the front lash might have been what kept them in some of those races. From your point of view, do you think Republicans this morning have any reason to rethink either how much do they revolve around President Trump or how they talk about stuff like, like immigration? Or did the results last night largely ratify that kind of language and the fact that the president is still undeniably the center of their universe? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, they'll make their own decisions, but I think losing the House and losing it by the margin they did um, is, is significant enough to uh, at least result in a reality check. I mean, you had losses from folks like Dana Rohrbacher in California, who is a very strong Trump loyalist. Um, unfortunately, Devin Nunes did win in California, but you had enough um, uh, candidates who were clearly identified 
side with Trump and, and very visible vocal supporters of him losing, that I think it's got to have to scare anyone who is, you know, in that position of looking ahead two years and thinking, what am I, how do I want to position myself for 2020? Um, and, and then, you know, furthermore, I mean, I think the real issue is going to be in the Senate and kind of how the Senate uses its power to protect the president and kind of what the calculus is going to be around you know, if, if senators do not perceive themselves to be vulnerable, you know, which, whichever crop comes up next in 2020, then, you know, what can, uh, what, you know, what will those members do and how far will they push it before they are worried that they will, you know, the Senate itself or that the individual members will be perceived as having gone too far. So let's bring, let's bring that to New York because that ties right into some of what we saw in New York in Congress, which you had people like Dan Donovan losing on Staten Island and a portion of Brooklyn. You had John Faso losing in the Hudson Valley. Um, even Claudia Tenney losing, who is a, you know, these are all, these Congress people who lost to Democrats are all varying degrees of closeness to Trump, but they all lost. And what do you make of what happened in New York in those big swings? Yeah, I mean, it, that's, it's monumental. And, um, you know, I think that you have such a kind of um, kind of clean geography of where these kinds of swings have happened, right? It wasn't an accident that it was Rohrbacher in California, or as you're saying, you know, Donovan and Faso and Tenney in New York, you're seeing basically a sort of geographical spreading of blueness on the map. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's, it, it does mean that you're going to have um, a party kind of a bit with, with some tensions within itself, right, around how to, how to position itself around Trump and a lot of pressure on those members who are kind of looking over their shoulder to kind of get in line with the president because he is such a bully and is, um, you know, so adamant about getting absolute loyalty from Congress such that Congress really, you know, under total Republican uh, rule until now has been pretty much a machine for kind of ratifying whatever the president wants to, to do, um, you know, except to the extent that... Um, um, Senate rules have inhibited that. So it's just, you know, it's it's. I don't think it's going to change much because Trump is such a bully. Um, but it, you know, it, did there you really see pressures. anything in those yeah. races from the Democratic side that shows where the Democrats need to head on the issues they're talking about or the types of candidates they're putting forward? Well, I think the big, one big question is going to be how does the picture, uh, how does how does the victories uh, yesterday affect the picture for the leadership of, of the House majority and particularly Nancy Pelosi? Because, for instance, you have Max Rose, uh, newly elected, saying he doesn't, uh, you know, he does not necessarily want Pelosi to be the leader. I think others like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have uh, raised the same issues. So you're going to see a lot of uh, pressure to, to get someone to replace Pelosi and and then, you know, I think the big issue for the Democrats in in the House is going to be kind of how much discipline or in what manner do they want to direct that discipline if they have it uh, around the big issues that they'll be dealing with. Like what investigations will committee leaders take on? Will they do things like call for the impeachment of Brett Kavanaugh? Um, will they do things, you know, certainly like call for the impeachment of Donald Trump? Right. Um, and what effects could those have in potentially kind of setting up conditions? for a backlash against this sort of tender new majority. So um, I think, you know, we see in the New York uh, um, uh, 
folks elected, kind of glimmers of those battles ahead. And it's going to be a real test for the Democratic Party of how they weather all of that. Yeah, the Donovan race is interesting, too. It raises uh, maybe another national question, which is, I expected him to win there because he was district attorney and was a well-known quantity and Rose was not. Uh, but he lost. And I think largely, I mean, Rose had an incredible operation, a lot of money. But in talking to voters, Trump was a huge factor. And it's this process folks have talked about, about these House races, more than they were before, becoming nationalized. Um, and I think you see that increasingly. Um, do you think that's a good thing? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I think for the House, it is appropriate that they be nationalized, given that those are the powers of Congress. And I think, if anything, the voters' approach to congressional races, at least as I see them in New York City, has tended to be uh, a little dis- Distorted toward, oh, what have they done in my neighborhood as a member? And, uh, you know, that's not really the role of a member of Congress. So I'm, um, I'm fine with that. Um, I do think, you know, in Rose's case, you know, he has a significant chunk of the district in Brooklyn. And it seemed from the numbers coming in yesterday that uh, Brooklyn was really where he really got a big boost and that Staten Island actually ended up being pretty loyal to Donovan. Um, so we didn't necessarily see a change there. It's just that the Brooklyn piece of the district has changed in terms of who's living and voting there. And I think I think across the board, you know, we looked at some of these numbers, turnout was up significantly by, by big margin. And I think Rose was also able to turn out some of the more democratic parts, even of Staten Island as well, in bigger numbers that, that helped him, him there. Um, let's shift to New York state elections. Um, what are your takeaways on the statewide races? These were Democrats were expected to win, Democrats won. Um, anything that stands out to you? Any concerns that you have with um, Democrats retaining control of these seats? Yeah, well, I mean, statewide, obviously, starting from the top, you have Governor Cuomo elected to a third term, but this term will be utterly unlike the first two terms. Why? Because he now has a Democratic state Senate, which he has said all along, oh, I want a Democratic state Senate. No, really, really, I want a Democratic state Senate. Well, now he has one. Um, and it removes him from his comfort zone where Cuomo uh, had often kind of used sort of played the Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate off the Democratic-controlled Assembly to kind of chart a path down the middle that he felt uh, comfortable with. And, you know, because Cuomo is at heart uh, a kind of, he's fiscally cautious. Um, He uh, kind of, he's very pragmatic. And I think he wanted to kind of temper um, the kind of polarizing tendencies of either party and being in the middle was a very comfortable place. Well, now he has uh, dual Democratic majorities. And this is very much like what Governor uh, Jerry Brown has faced in California, where Brown has ended up uh, being uh, feeling compelled to veto legislation coming out of uh, the legislature. And um, you know, Cuomo will be now in a similar position where uh, the leaders in the Senate uh, and the Assembly are going to be testing him. And I think it's going to be particularly delicate around on a couple of fronts. One is going to be on budgetary matters and on big priorities like funding the subway. Uh, are we going to have a millionaire's tax? Um, you know, a lot of a lot of questions where I think Cuomo is is going to be pushed pretty aggressively outside his comfort zone, outside positions where he's already uh, taking a pretty strong stand. Um, I think the other area where we're going to see um, the the uh, uh, big pressures. I mean, there's a bunch of them, but one I'm looking ahead to is um, you know we have rent laws expiring. 
expiring at the end of um, this coming legislative session. And a lot of uh, clear signals from um, Democrats in both houses that they intend to be very aggressive in trying to strengthen rent laws, not just renew them, which puts Cuomo in a challenging position because, uh, frankly, landlords are a powerful lobby in New York. They gave uh, Cuomo a lot of his campaign, a lot of money in the election. Um, And now he's in a position of having to uh, or being pressured to support legislation that will take a bite out of those landlords. Um, And so how does he do that while maintaining his kind of newly crafted uh, identity as a progressive is going to be a huge challenge for Cuomo. We should say you're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio, coming to you from Brooklyn. And we're speaking with Alyssa Katz of the Daily News Editorial Board. Um, One of the other statewide races, obviously, of interest was Letitia James becoming uh, the Attorney General-elect. So much of that race, both uh, in the primary phase and general election, was about how to define that office, how to use its powers and not overuse its powers, to what extent it could form a bulwark against against President Trump and her independence from the governor. How do you hope she uses uh, the powers of that office? What do you think sort of her 100-day agenda should be? Yeah, it's, it's it, you know, I think it's fantastic for New York that James is as activist-minded as, as she is in that, you know, we've now had a series of attorneys general who have really um, been able to uh, def- continue to define the office as a, a proactive force for the interests of New York and the interests of the nation and all the more critical in the age of Trump. So, I mean, I think she's going to have her hands full first just sort of managing the uh, massive amount of litigation that the attorney general, that you know, Barbara Underwood, the current holder of the office, and Eric Schneiderman, the prior uh, holder, had filed just uh, against the Trump administration alone. We have a trial going on just this week around uh, the U.S. Census and the attempt to add an immigration, I'm sorry, citizenship question to the census where um, the case is just uncovering appalling lies and deceit and, uh, you know, kind of illegal actions, frankly, on the part of the Trump administration. So, I mean, I would just hope that she really makes sure that the focus of the office stays sharp because there is so much going on. There's so much litigation that the risk is that if she too quickly, and I get the impulse to do this, tries to kind of leave her own mark on the mm-hmm. office and move beyond what's there now, I mean, I don't know what kind of staffing bandwidth she has left to go pursue more cases and more issues, but I, I think sort of, yeah, kind of ensuring victory on, on the current basket of litigation would be really important. Um, but beyond that, I mean, she's talked, and this is in line with where she's been as, as public advocate of New York City, talked about being more aggressive on uh, the part of tenants being, I mean, on behalf of tenants, uh, more aggressive on labor issues. Um, I think she, as she has in the public advocate's office, will come up against the limits of New York law uh, in terms of what she can actually accomplish from where she sits. But given that we do now have a Democratic legislature, what one thing we could see, and this gets to the question of how close she is to Cuomo, um, you could see a kind of partnership. And she hinted that this is, you know, in her uh, victory speech last night. I'm talking about um, just what could be done in New York to really, uh, you know, help advocate for uh, for the people of the state. So I think that she could work in partnership with the legislature to really change the law and then enforce the law. So I think that's going to be a a great path for her. I think I mean, I think we've hit on the three big buckets for her. Right. What's she going to do about Washington and Trump? 
what's she going to do about sort of a lot of the more regular functions of the attorney general's office, but you still decide as attorney general some of the focus. And she's clearly, I think, going to enhance the focus on some of those things like protecting consumers and workers and tenants. I mean, that that's if, if her history is anything, you know, it would indicate that. And then it would also indicate the third bucket that she's probably not going to ruffle too many feathers in state government with Cuomo, with the legislature. I mean, it just it's hard to see that happening. You never know until the person's in the office. Once she's in as attorney general, you know, she might not feel like she owes anybody anything anymore or anything like that. However, she's very close with the Democratic leadership of the legislature, pretty close with Cuomo. So, you know, I think if people are looking for more oversight or investigations in state government. I don't know that that's going to come from the attorney general. I think that's right. I will just also note, and we can kind of speculate about the reasons why, but that Eric Schneiderman, as their predecessor, was not at, at really especially aggressive totally, on, totally. Uh, on on, on state true. government either. And I think that's just sort of tr- tradition um, that the governor uh, and the attorney general try to stay out of each other's way. It's maybe not the best tradition, but it is what we have. And I, I, I mean, I think it'll be very... James has to go from managing a very small public advocate office, as, as you indicated, to uh, managing a vast attorney general's office. And it will be interesting to see how she comes in and lands and learns. And, and you know, she's got a pretty short transition period here, a um, couple months. But, it, you know, it'll be very interesting. And then, you know, she's talked about potentially, I think, keeping Barbara Underwood on if she's willing to stay. And that might be a very smart move if she can convince her to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's an office. Look, it's gone through a tremendous amount of upheaval with Eric Schneiderman's resignation last year. And so, I mean, this is just, you know, there is clearly a, a very healthy cadre of uh, attorneys and, and other staff members who are really committed to the work and are out there. You know, we see, we see them doing that, you know, doing a climate, not climate, I'm sorry, a lawsuit against Exxon Mobil for fraud and, um, and, and, and a lot of other great litigation. So it's just, you know, I think it's just a, a matter of kind of, okay, now everybody, let's, you know, you know she has to convince everybody that... Um, they should invest in her because attorneys can get paid much better to work outside of government. She's got to really build a strong team that's very devoted to her now that things have settled down, and that will be a big test for for James. So the state senate, we talked earlier about it, um, you know, going democratic by a healthy margin for the first time in like half a century. Um, some of those races are still undecided, but it's at least five seats, maybe as much as eight. Um, the question that we've come upon in some of our reporting is, you know, the downstate description of the case for taking over the Senate has been a fairly progressive list of legislation involving abortion rights and gun control, um, even to some degree single-payer health care. Um, but we don't know, or, or I don't know, if the caucus actually kind of looks like that, you know, given the upstate races, the upstate seats involved, the question always of whether they'll be able to maintain even post-IDC unity around an agenda. Do you see this as a progressive Democratic caucus, or is it more complicated than that? We, I mean, you're raising great questions, Jared. I mean, I think we have to see kind of how the dynamic shakes out, and you can be sure that Cuomo is going to be poking and prodding and dividing and so on to kind of shape that, and conquering, <laughs> to shape that dynamic. So, and I think especially, and especially at a moment where the, you know, Congress has in, in the tax law capped the state and local tax deductions 
election, um, you're going to see a lot of concerns around government spending that are especially going to come from the suburban counties and upstate, um, along with pressure from New York City, try to um, you know get 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 uh, funding for programs and more broadly things like single payer health care. You know they have enormous benefits and they have enormous costs, and it's, you know there's questions that I think you're going to feel uh, heat on um, within the Senate around should New York really commit to that. So yeah, I think it'll be a very tense caucus. It's not going to be a kind of clean progressive caucus at all. I think they're smart enough to be careful, and I think single payer health care is something they know Cuomo doesn't want to touch, and I don't think they really want to touch it, at least early on. I would say it doesn't even really get looked at the first year of the two-year cycle, and then you're getting into an election year for the state legislature because it's every two years, and, and they might not want to touch that because all they have to do is move in that direction a little, and that's what all Republicans are running on is is even more than they just did, which they even were just now, um, you know, that, that the Democrats want to hike taxes and have a government takeover of health care in New York, and we can't afford that, and they're, you know, coming for your health care plans and all that and on Long Island and elsewhere that that probably, you know, could be to their advantage. Um, so it seems like they're indicating they're going to go for some of the voting reforms and election reforms and maybe things like you said, reproductive health and some gun, more gun control. Um, is there anything else, you know, on the, I mean, congestion pricing is obviously... Maybe. Congestion pricing is complicated, though, because... But, but this is but this is interesting because they're saving the MTA is going to have to be on the table, and then the question becomes how can they do it without bankrupting the state? You know, because they, they, they there will be a responsibility there to figure out where the money comes from. I mean, it kind of forces members who've been able to say yeah, yeah, I support congestion pricing, forces them to actually uh, um, commit to what where they really stand. Um, I think the other. Um, you know the the other issue that you might see action on that I think is relatively low hanging fruit is criminal justice reform. I mean Cuomo has an excellent agenda. I think the Assembly supported it, but you you really couldn't get it past the Senate, uh, which includes things like uh, you know discovery rule reform, so that defendants' attorneys you know, and their attorneys can actually see the evidence against them before like a minute before trial, or um, you know have bail reform, which is complicated, and New York has to look at other states' uh, challenges in that to really figure out a good path. But there's so much work to be done on issues where there's pretty close to a consensus among the Democrats. Um, so I think it's just it, they would do really well to focus on those issues, make progress, and then build from there. And are you, um, I mean, the Daily News has done a lot of work on the Child Victims Act. Do yeah. you think that that is something that's um, fairly easy for them to get done? Or even the Democrats taking control, it might not be so simple? You know, that is, is we will see the Child Victims Act. I mean, I think the main forces against it are the Catholic Church to some extent, some of the Jewish organizations uh, that are also concerned about liability. And the big sticking point is whether uh, the the law can allow for a one-year look-back, meaning that uh, you could have people who had in the past already um, been victims making civil claims, um, which could get very, very costly for any organization paying out those claims. So I think it will happen. Um, I think it's, uh, it's it's within reach in part because different dioceses have already set up their own victims' compensation funds, and that lowers their liability. So I think it's only a matter of time before the Child Victims Act is law. And I'll just quickly add, you know, there's a few other things we didn't mention. We're not going to get to every issue that might be on the docket, but things like the DREAM Act and yep. uh, the uh, gender 
um, and even some environmental issues where Democrats have wanted to, you know, pass legislation to move faster on uh, moving away from, you know, carbon emissions. Um, you know, some of those yep. things, the, the devil's always in the details and, and there might be some real push and pull among Democrats and especially with the governor. He's always got his own agenda. Um, so every issue, basically every issue is on the table in some way, shape or form. That's right. I'd add to that marijuana legalization, right. which will be a very interesting uh, debate. So and there's always yeah. a fighting over Medicaid costs and education funding, which are the two biggest parts of the state budget. Moving to the city for a second, the ballot questions, um, which all passed by um, by fairly healthy margins. Um, I guess, what do you think about the implementation of those? I mean, I know that the, the Daily News was was down on them. Um, it, you know, it, do we see any possibility of them having a positive impact? And I guess, to take a purely political viewpoint, that could be seen as a victory for De Blasio, who hasn't had a lot of victories uh, <laughs> since since his like landslide victory a year ago. Uh, does it say anything about sort of his standing in the city, his ability to get to still have some juice? Yeah, no. I mean, I'll be clear about why the Daily News came out against the three ballot measures, and I'll, I'll put it in the, in the way that I uh, actually view it, which is which is that look, the the the, the, the uh, Charter Commission beside, that he called besides or that he you know uh, convened uh, besides kind of preempting a parallel commission that the city council uh, had intended to create was really, I feel like, his effort to De Blasio's effort to rehabilitate his image as a government reformer after the debacle of all of his fundraising escapades, when he you know, went and raised millions of dollars from it, developers and others with, in, with, in, with issues before city government who would be barred from contributing to a normal campaign, and in doing so, uh, actually like kind of circumvented campaign finance laws and, and, and saved a lot of money for his own campaign. So we just looked at all of this as kind of like they could have done some made some significant reforms like instant run of voting on the commission didn't uh, kind of put ballot measures up that are totally unobjectionable and look in themselves are fine I'll say it like we said they, no vote no they're fine there's no harm on any one of them but that's kind of the point the purpose of them in my view is to help de Blasio kind of clean his slate going forward and, and be a reformer and, and he won he, he got that victory and he you know he's certainly us uh, is savvy political operative, and um, and that, and that's the result. So as far as implementing them, look, I look forward to seeing these measures implemented. I think that it'd be fascinating to see what community board uh, term limits, in particular, accomplish, and whether it changes at all the dynamic around uh, the real tensions around uh, development, displacement, gentrification uh, in the city. Is there? I, I'm just interested in your take, Jarrett. I mean, is there one of the three or two of the three or all three that, I mean, that you have particular interest in, like seeing how they play out? Uh, I mean, they're all interesting uh, to, to varying degrees. I think that the, um, you know, I think that the, the, the term list is the most problematic one. I voted against that. Problematic, okay. Yeah. Um, the other two I voted for. Participatory uh, <laughs> budgeting is, is, I think, complicated. Um, but I think a citywide approach is better than the district by district one. And, um, you know, the campaign money thing makes sense, except that, um, you know, I, I voted for that, but I'm not sure if it's going to force more people out of the system. That's obviously the kind of... That's the interesting, right? And, and independent, I think it's going to increase the power of outside money, mm -hmm. post Citizens United, in, in, you know, which is not capped at all. And also, I think the reason labor unions supported this measure very strongly is because it strengthens their hand as well. So I think a lot of this is actually about strengthening the powers that are unseen within the system. I think I agree with just about everything that's been said, but I also think that 
even in this city system that, that has a, you know, a fairly well thought of public matching system and, you know, caps on donations and things like that, 5,100 maximum donation is still a lot of money. And, you know, the, the group of people able to give $5,000 to politicians is a certain, you know, subset of the city that typically wants something very tangible in return. And basically cutting that in half, I think, is a, is a good move. Although I do agree, it might just channel that money into independent expenditures and then you get into it be, being much more dark. And if um, I understand correctly, actually, it's, it's an interesting experiment we'll see, right? Because in the current cycle, people have the option. Um, yeah, that's right? a disaster, I think. <laughs> but, and that's I guess problem. it'd be a test, you know, who, which, which, which one people think. Yeah, they, but I, I think the community boards one is a, is a good one. And the, this idea of you have to hop off for two years and you can go back on makes it almost a non-reform in my mind. I mean, people are crowing about it like it's going to cost community boards so much. I just don't see that. Uh, my biggest concern is in places where they can barely get the community boards filled. That's that's where I'm concerned. And I, I think it's a very real concern. And I was just going to say, I think the, the value of the measure really depends on which community boards you're concerned about. And I feel like a lot of the debate, as so much in New York City is, uh, hap- you know, plays out, is that it's, it's centered on places like the Upper West Side or Park Slope, um, where, yes, you have very, you know, you have a long line of people who could do it because they are you know, either professionally involved in these fields or have some background in volunteering in those fields. In other areas, you just don't have necessarily a deep bench of people with the experience. And then it's a question of will the will the, com- uh, the commission that's supposed to uh, train community board members actually be effective in training them to be an independent bulwark against whatever is coming at them. And that, that remains to be seen. Yeah, that commission was my least favorite part of the three. So this has been a substantive and serious conversation. Let's end it with a question that's totally frivolous and speculative. Is Cuomo going to run for president? Uh, You'll be thinking about it every day (laughs) and recalculating the chances of it every day. And only on the last day will any of us, including Andrew Cuomo, know the answer to that question. What is the last day? Like, what's the sell-by date, do we think? Uh, I wouldn't venture a guess on the timing. I I personally think he is going to have a very, very hard time in an era where, you know, we're talking about Oprah Winfrey, in an era where, you know, be having a kind of power on, uh, on television, on social media, and to really reach people in the gut and in the heart is really who is able to prevail. Cuomo, his, 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 he's politically genius in ways that have nothing to do with those qualities, and I don't think the, the ways that he operates are at all compatible with what it would take to actually run for president. And I'll just quickly add to that that you know I think what I think in his consideration of it and the buzz around it, we're about to see this unified democratic government in Albany. He's going to decide what he wants to work with the legislature on. They're going to probably pass a bunch of stuff in the first three months before the budget, and that might be his his springboard to really crow about his new accomplishments and experiment with it if he's going to. You know, that, that could be there or even at the end of, of the legislative session. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Alyssa Katz from the Daily News Editorial Board, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And Jarrett, we heard from Alyssa Katz of the Daily News editorial board, some of our thoughts. Uh, really significant election day, both nationally and in New York. Um, and the conversation is already turning, as we did a little bit, to also looking ahead now, uh, what's going to happen in 2019. We can leave the federal level aside perhaps a little bit. Really, there's a lot to be determined there, but also so much of our focus both on the show and at our publications and, of course, elsewhere in New York is going to be on what's going to happen in New York now that you have this unified democratic control of state government coming in for 2019. Well, you mentioned at the top, Ben, that you know the day after an election feels like, uh, speaking as a person raised, raised Catholic, the day after Christmas, what do you do with the letdown, with the unwrapped presents and the uh, tree starting to look a little bit draggled? This is a different day because I think so much about this election has been teasing up very concrete ideas of what the next year is going to bring. And even beyond that, there's just a lot happening in 2019 that's going to make it a very interesting year. Normally, this is the part, for those who follow it closely and are real junkies about it, this is the part of the New York City, New York State cycle that is a down year. It's the it's the, the year between a statewide race and a presidential race. You know, there's no city council, mayor elections, there's nothing on the state level. All you have really are some judicial elections and three district attorney races. So normally it would be kind of a dead zone. We'd have be struggling for what we're going to talk about. But for a lot of reasons, there is just a lot happening both in the city and the state and a lot of the same issues um, all year long, um, starting, frankly, with the district attorney races. Um, one of which, at least, is going to be very, very interesting because the Queen's District Attorney, Richard Brown, is stepping down. And that race is, I think, going to become a kind of electoral test of some of the sentiment around criminal justice reform based on some of the people who are running and very different opinions they have on that topic. I'm interested to see how much of the city's sort of attention gets grabbed by this race. Queens is obviously the second biggest borough uh, population-wise. There's everything in Queens, and I can say that having grown up there uh, with a lot of authority. But it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this district attorney race plays out. It's going to be important. It might even get national attention. Uh, and we are seeing already different candidates like city council member Rory Lansman, who's thrown his hat in the ring, trying to stake out ground as a big time progressive reformer, whereas D.A. Brown, who's leaving after decades, um, has been much more of a moderate, even somewhat conservative uh, Democrat holding the position. So that's going to be a fascinating race on the docket. Also in the city, we've got another Charter Revision Commission that's already started its work. We've got Mayor de Blasio entering uh, year six. So there's there's going to be endless policy happening, discussions around major changes to the city charter through this other Charter Revision Commission, whereas the mayor's Charter Revision Commission was a little bit, as we discussed, a little bit uh, softer in its proposals. So so a lot happening also on the city level that we'll, that we'll dive into. If this Charter Revision Commission really could open up a much bigger section of the charter, including around planning and land use. A lot of discussions about that, how the city makes decisions about how to use its land, how to change zoning. Uh, whether a more 
comprehensive approach is necessary. Um, so that's interesting. A lot going on around housing, um, you know, in terms of more rezonings, questions obviously about NYCHA funding and responsibility for the problems there, uh, the affirmatively furthering fair housing process, or as it's called in New York City, where we live in NYC, looking at whether there's been discrimination built into our housing programs. Very interesting. And I would mention just to kind of follow on the theme of elections, because of one of the elections this week, we will have an election here in the city for yes. a public advocate, yes. a special election, which will be fascinating because special elections typically get about seven people voting <laughs> in them. This one will be for a citywide office public that is um, obviously a, a perch from which people have run successfully for mayor or and attorney for general. general. <laughs> uh, God knows what else. And uh, it's so far in a way, it seems like a lot of kind of marquee names are going to be in that race. So there's going to be a special election for public advocate in probably mid to late February. There's a little bit of variation as to when the mayor can call it, but it's pretty prescribed. And then there's going to be a regular election in the fall. So along with the Queen's DA race and the other DA races, it's there's going to be a regular public advocate election. Possibly primary, primary and general. And right. general. It's hard to imagine. Well, I guess I guess if you had a strong Democrat win the special, maybe nobody challenges them in the primary. We'll see. Um, but that, that race is already filling up. We had our live show, WB live show election day special yesterday we were joined by city council member jamani williams he's planning to run um assembly member michael blake from the bronx has already indicated he's running uh nomiki Konst, a progressive activist and journalist and member of the dnc has thrown her hat in the ring a few other people have said they're considering it i very much accept, expect former city council speaker melissa mark viverito to run and then there's a half a dozen to a dozen other names that might possibly jump in. And this is just a manifestation of what's going to be a a larger, maybe more subtle, maybe more secretive beginning of people to really position themselves for 2021. That's obviously already been happening. It will happen more. People need to raise money. People need to uh, hire consultants, start to build an infrastructure. It seems crazy to say that. feels like we were just talking about 2017, but that race is coming. It's going to be, as we've said, a crazy year because of term limits, basically everything thrown open, except for, for whom whoever this newly elected public advocate is. Um, and so people are going to start moving around. And that will have an impact on city politics. That will have an impact certainly on the mayor, who, as he enters his sixth year in office, had been looking a little wounded by just a terrible year of headlines, not a lot of positive news, a sense that he was, uh, at least on my part, losing some juice, maybe even some relevance. Uh, however, that might have been partly offset by the results uh, on Tuesday, where the three ballot questions he pushed from his kind of uh, besmirched Charter Reform Commission won uh, overwhelmingly, um, establishing term limits for community boards, a citywide uh, engagements of engagement commission, and uh, new limits for fundraising under the city's CFB system. Yeah, I mean, I think these are fairly significant tweaks to some of the civic life of the city and and, and as we discussed, certainly potentially some positives in there. I think we had some fun differences of opinion there between yourself, myself, and Alyssa. But um, I don't know that those are giving him that much juice. That's my opinion. What I do think potentially is interesting for the mayor is the new Albany dynamics and whether that lets him get some some wins. 
I don't think this is that likely, but wouldn't it be something if the mayor of New York City and this new unified democratic government in Albany sort of figure out a way to like get a lot of stuff done and be on the same page instead of arguing about all sorts of things? That would, that would be, be nice. Be and, and it is incredible. possible. People have talked about it being possible. that just that putting it out there. That, <laughs> that and, and Andrew, Andrew de Blasio, I was just going to, uh, to marry them off. Yeah. That Mayor Bill de Blasio and some of the newly elected anti-IDC Senate senators, Democratic senators, will form common cause. Probably not an official caucus, certainly not a conference, <laughs> uh, but will be able to be a, a block pushing the city's agenda, de Blasio's agenda, um, and uh, finding uh, an alliance there to be beneficial to both parties. Obviously, one of the barriers to much of what de Blasio has wanted to do has been uh, the Senate, and, uh, and that, that could change. Right. I mean, he's still probably going to push the things that he wants, like higher taxes on the wealthy that Governor Cuomo doesn't want, and that might immediately throw a lot of cold water on their possibilities of working together. I think what's the most likely scenario is that Cuomo figures out how to work with the new majorities in the two houses, and de Blasio is a little bit left on the outside looking in, And but maybe he figures out ways to be part of the conversation to compromise. There's all sorts of things that he wants to see done in Albany. They're going to have to have very serious conversations on budgetary matters, especially related to the MTA. Uh, so, so that will that will provide very interesting dynamics for his sixth year and this first new year of a of a democratic era in Albany that has at least two years to its life, and we'll see if it has more. Um, and so sh- we should say that, you know, part of as we're looking ahead here is, you know, what, what we're planning to do between now and the end of the year is really set the stage for 2019, and we're already doing it in this conversation, but we're really going to try at Gotham Gazette and City Limits and on this show to really get everybody ready for the political year to come, both city and state levels, and, and so the, the dynamics happening around de Blasio and his agenda in the city and then this new dynamic in Albany is a lot of where um, you know sort of that crossover between city interests and laws and budgets and what happens in Albany is going to yeah, it's a series that we're going to do together with this show being a big part of it Agenda 2019 is what we are calling it because of the changes at the state level because of all the things happening in the city and also the, I think the big wild card is is Washington which is obviously a part of that picture in terms of infrastructure in terms of maybe immigration law the changes to the deduction of state and local taxes being a potentially big pressure on the city and state. Um, it's unclear at this stage how the Democrats are going to play that. We don't even know how their who their leader is going to be in Washington. But it's all part of this fascinating mix they'll be looking at. And I think you know we've talked about some of the issues, but let's run through some of the others that we think are on the agenda for probably really the first six months of 2019. We've talked about some of the housing things. I know on your on your docket, political f- reform jumps to the to the top. Absolutely. I mean, we talked about election reform, voting reform, that the, the, you know, how elections are managed and run in, in the city and state are really in need of some changes. But that's not just about administration of elections. It's also laws around things like early voting and same-day registration. So that's going to be clearly a major topic for discussion early in the year in Albany, uh, election reform, voting reform, and even tying into that campaign finance reform, government ethics. Democrats have a lot 
to of of talking they've done to now walk the walk, and we'll see if they do it. You know, I think we uh, were speaking with Alyssa about criminal justice reform. Obviously, some quick things on the ballot or the docket are bail reform, speedy trial, discovery, and a lot of those tie in too to the city's process around closing Rikers. You know, a lot, the mayor has often said that in order to depopulate the island and permit them to create these smaller neighborhood facilities, they need the ability to get people out of lockup earlier, um, you know, bail, speedy trial being part of that. And frankly, that leads to a separate but related city process, which is the process around approving these sites for these new jails, which has become, you know, very controversial and uh, will be a a significant fight for the mayor and and his allies uh, and will create some interesting bedfellows, I think, among folks who feel different things about the whole idea of closing Rikers, the role of incarceration in our criminal justice system, the politics around it could be very interesting. And we touched a little bit on in the conversation with Alyssa about health care, uh, the possibility of single payer getting any discussion in Albany. The Assembly's passed it a number of times. Lots of Senate Democrats signed on to the bill at the end of last session. But again, maybe that was a little bit of posturing. Um, so that'll certainly be a topic worth looking at because you also have the, the public hospital system in the city still trying to figure its way out of some crisis. Um, so so right. health and health care is health always care, obviously, Medicaid spending, the question of whether there'll be changes to the Affordable Care Act coming out of, out of Washington. And then transit obviously looms large. We know the MTA needs money. We know that the various rebuilding plans are coming to fruition. The apocalypse I believe, (laughs) hits. Um, And also, uh, you know, on transit, the mayor's uh, ferry system, um, the uh, redesign of the bus system is part of that mix uh, mix as well. And as I said, they have to figure out how they're going to fund this modernization plan that Andy Byford from the MTA has put forward that everybody seems to agree is is fine and good. They just need to find the tens of billions of dollars for it. Where does congestion pricing come into that? Cuomo has more or less guaranteed that he's going to move congestion pricing forward. So we're going to really have to see if he's able to do that. Um, there's other issues. I mean, every issue we could, we could really go down the list, but those are some of the highlights. I would also add education. There's a charter school cap that that the city's bumping up against. You know, that's going to be a democratic infighting issue. Governor Cuomo is a big proponent of charter schools. We'll see where that goes. Any number of issues. I mean, climate change. You guys did a great article about how that was absent from this race entirely, and this is a crisis facing our entire world. It's going to change every thing we're talking about now. There's been very little discussion of it. Um, that will be on the agenda in 2019, whether we want it to be or not. But please tune in to Max and Murphy. Check out our website, citylimits.org and Gotham Gazette for more on this series. Be part of it. Uh, please tune in always. You've been listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. The voting is over. Let's look ahead to what the governing looks like. Mm-hmm.